six candidates uh, have jumped through the hoops and met all the standards. And those standards, uh, they're nothing to sneeze at either. We're talking about the Canadian Progressive Conservatives leadership race. Uh, Candidates had to come up with $300,000 in registration fees, and they had to submit all of it up front, along with a compliance deposit and signatures from 500 party members by last Friday in order to be verified. Six did so. Well, Maybe. There's some others who say they did too, and they're not sure why they're not candidates. We'll get into that in a minute. Meanwhile, there are six official candidates in the running for the leadership. Um, You know, and as we go along, that number will probably change as some drop off, and then you've got endorsing opponents, and ultimately the last two, and probably more of them, will go to the vote sometime. It's in September, I believe, mid-September. And uh, before all that happens, we have campaigning, we have debates, the first one coming up uh, next week right here in Edmonton. So uh, it's just starting to ramp up. So let's get, uh, well, let's handicap the race if we can. We have uh, Chris Chapin joining us. Chris is a veteran of conservative leadership races and a managing principal of the Upstream Strategy Group. Chris, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate your time. Thanks for having me on, Shay. So let's just go through the field quickly here, starting with the six candidates. Is that more than we expected when this leadership race began? Six official candidates? I think it's a little higher than uh, I think many would have thought uh, of the names that first entered the race or, or threw their name in the ring. I think the fact that both Scott Agenson and Roman Baber uh, from Ontario were able to raise the $300,000 and the 500 signatures to get on the uh, on the ballot is, you know, I don't know if it's a surprise, but it's certainly not the you know, the, the names of the front runners that we certainly expected to hit those thresholds easily. Yeah, speaking of the front runners, it's still Pierre Polyev's race to lose at this point, right? He is seen clearly as the front runner right now. I think that's safe to say. I think the party released uh, the first fundraising numbers yesterday, and Pierre Polyev was in the lead in that. He also led by the number of donors. And based off the crowd sizes yeah. we're seeing as he crisscrosses the country, it's hard to discount the fact that he's clearly the front runner. Uh, but there's certainly, you know, the others uh, don't want to suggest that they're that far behind. But uh, I mean, from those kind of metrics, he's certainly out there. Lots of enthusiasm, like you say, huge crowds, really impressive. Um, you know, not enough to win the leadership based on those crowds. He's going to need more than that. What do you see as being challenges that Paulia faces? Well, the challenges, you know, any leadership candidate faces is how many memberships can you sell? That's, you know, what I think most people forget this race boils down to. It's not the size of your crowds or how much money you can raise. There's been many candidates and many leadership races that have had big crowds before or out fundraised their opponents by hundreds of thousands that ultimately come up short. It's about making sure you have enough members and enough ridings across the country to put you over the finish line and and get to that, you know, 50% plus one. And so I think, that's always the challenge any candidate faces for Pierre Polyev. That's, you know, to ensure that he, he has a coalition of voters in, in every corner of the country that get him there. Uh, and the way that the federal party uses, you know, the point system, that, that can be a challenge for some front runners. Uh, we've seen it plague, you know, a front runner like Peter McCabe, yeah. for example, where in the last leadership race, he, he led in fundraising and uh, certainly did well in membership sales, but the, the coalition Aaron O'Toole was able to put together ultimately uh, surpassed him on the final ballot. Uh, of course, I think the guy most people see as number two and the biggest threat to Pierre Polyev would be Jean Charest. He's certainly the biggest name uh, aside from Polyev at this point. Um, has he managed to build any momentum? He's been in the race for a while now. Has he managed to make up any ground? I'm not sure if it's that he's made up any ground. I mean, the, the fundraising numbers that were announced yesterday will certainly be encouraging yeah. for, for Jean Charest. Uh, I think they've executed a, a very smart uh, 
you know, PR strategy to get him into every newspaper and on every TV outlet to remind conservatives across the country who he is. He's been out of the public eye for the better part of a decade. And there's a lot of younger voters that wouldn't be nearly as familiar with Jean Charest as they would be uh, with Pierre Polyev just because somebody like Jean Charest had to sign up for a Twitter account to run in this race. Uh, whereas, you know, Pierre Polyev had a huge uh, step ahead in, in the, yeah. the social media group he already had. So, you know, I think... Jean Charest is certainly a contender. I think the, the other two right behind him cannot be discounted in Leslie Lewis. And, and certainly uh, I could never count out Patrick Brown from, from winning anything. Uh, you know, he's just such a strong organizer that I think Jean Charest is certainly perceived to be the one uh, right behind Pierre Polyev or, or nipping at his toes. I, I'm not sure that's entirely true. I think the, the other two both have formidable voter coalitions across the country that will provide a, a real challenge to that. Uh, you know, when it, when it comes down to the votes cap, might uh, might surprise people and potentially even leapfrog Sheree. Yeah, well, Lewis is very interesting because she impressed a lot. I mean, this is her second go-around at the leadership, and she really she didn't win, obviously, but she really impressed a lot of people the first time. So she's got a pretty solid foundation to build on, I think. Absolutely. I mean, she's the only one in this race that ran in the last leadership yeah. race, and she's got a membership uh, a list that two years ago, I won't say nearly won it for her, but she came darn close to to getting onto that final ballot. And some believe she could have maybe edged out either Aaron O'Toole or Peter McKay on the final ballot had she gotten to it. So she's got a lot of data from the, the last leadership race that was less than less than two years ago at this point. So she's certainly got a, a, an advantage in that regard. Whether she can, you know, whether lightning can strike twice for her, that's the big question. She was certainly appealing to many conservative voters as something new in the last leadership race. Uh, Aaron O'Toole had obviously run in the previous one. Peter McKay had co-formed the party with Stephen Harper 20 years ago. So she offered the party something new. I I think the the challenge, and, you know, aside from just being a strong social conservative in the race, the challenge she's going to face is, is Pierre Polyev eating in some of that, you know, offering something new to conservative voters uh, because he is he is something new and he's an opportunity to kind of refresh the party, just like she was in the last race. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, I want to ask you about the three or four who say, you know what, we met the thresholds and we're not allowed to be candidates. I'm talking about uh, Joseph Forgo from Saskatchewan, Joel Etienne and Grant Abraham, all who said they came up the $300,000, they had the signatures, they were ready to go and the party would not allow them to be um, official candidates and some are filing protests. Um, is the party sort of putting up some guardrails around who's in and who's out of this race, or do you really think uh, there's more to it here? I, I mean, the party's certainly entitled to put up guardrails around the race. I, I think it's, it's still very new, and I think there's probably more to learn. Uh, a lot of these candidates were absolute nobodies uh, that have kind of come out of nowhere to try to seek the leadership race so i there's there's also a lot for them to gain by continuing to get their names out there in news stories saying that they did meet criteria even if they may not have uh ultimately it's the party that gets to decide that and if if there was wrongdoing that'll that'll find its way out uh to the public eye and, and scrutiny may come as a result of that but at this point I, I i trust the party they've you know the conservative party of canada has now held several leadership races in the last couple of years uh, much, you know, unfortunately in their case, but I think they know what they're doing. And if, if they did, in fact, disqualify these candidates, I, I think there's likely valid reasons for it. Uh, and of course, now all, all eyes on May 11th next week here in Edmonton, as all six of them square off in an English debate. And that's when this campaign really kicks off in earnest, I guess, right? 
Absolutely. It's going to be the first real time that these candidates are, are in a room together and, and have the opportunity to challenge each other. There was a all candidates forum in Ontario this week or, or, or just over the weekend. And, you know, that was an opportunity for the six of them to be in a room together. But they just gave pre-prepared yeah. six minute speeches. This will be the real first chance for the, the couple front runners, especially to go after each other. Uh, talk about the ideas and, and challenge each other on some of the you know, controversial positions. There's certainly some divisions lining up uh, over things like Bill 21 and religious freedom. Uh, Scott agency brought up supply management, which is always a, a lightning rod in conservative party leadership races. And, and then just the, the overall discussions on how we've handled the, the COVID pandemic and, and you know, mask mandates, uh, vaccine mandates. I think there's going to be certainly a lot more things that come up uh, in this debate that are, are divisive than, than the last one. Uh, on that note, I meant to ask you, and I forgot, Roman Baber, uh, turfed from Doug Ford's cabinet. Uh, he was opposed to COVID-19 lockdowns. He sort of staked out that position, like you say, some of the more divisive issues. How big of a factor do you think he might be, and could he hurt Polyev more so than anybody else? I'm not sure as much that he could hurt Polyev. I think Roman has certainly put himself in a position that he's got the opportunity to potentially be a kingmaker in this race. He's certainly going to be able to sell memberships. I think the fact that he's on the ballot uh, with raising the $300,000, getting the nomination signatures that he did, and it sounds like he did so relatively easily, he built up a, a solid organizational network over not just uh, the pandemic, but before that. He was a smart organizer politically. He The mandates uh, and the lockdowns have certainly given him a, a lightning rod to appeal to certain members yeah. uh, across the country. Uh, he's also a unique candidate in that when he talks about ending mandates and ending lockdowns, there's a guy that's fully vaccinated and said, you know, there's science I trust and there's science I don't trust. So he, he certainly could be a factor in this race. It, it'll all depend on how much party members want to look back at the last two years versus look forward to the future. Going to be very, very interesting. Chris, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. Thanks, Jay. That is Chris Chapin, who is a veteran of conservative leadership races and a managing principal of the Upstream Strategy Group, giving us a breakdown. Um, yeah, it's definitely going to be... Uh, interesting to see how it goes. And of course, as we said, May 11th is when uh, all six of them will come together in Edmonton for an English leadership debate. Um, and that'll give us our first chance to sort of see how they interact and how they go after each other and how they defend their positions. And, you know, debates are always fun. So that's coming up May 11th.